Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. This is the podcast that looks at one film in each episode and uses it to explain the nine types and three instinctual biases of the Enneagram model of personality. One movie, one type. My name is Mario Sakura, and I'll be joined by Maria Jose Munita and Tamar Zanetti. We are the principals of Awareness to Action International, a global consulting and training company that specializes in practical applications of the Enneagram. You can find out more about us and our work at awarenesstoaction.com. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and as always, I'm here with Maria Jose Monita. Hi, guys. And with Tamara Zanetti. Hello, everyone. <laughs> we have a special guest today. Um, TJ Daw is joining us, and we're going to have a um, kind of a different approach to today's podcast. We're just going to have more of a general conversation with TJ and uh, talk about TJ, the work that he does regarding creativity and the Enneagram. And uh, TJ is kind of a multifaceted guy with a, a diverse background in the arts and also incorporates the Enneagram into his work in some really interesting ways. He's also, you know, one of the handful of people who's even a, uh, a bigger movie nerd than I am. So uh, it's great to have him on the podcast. Uh, TJ, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Great. So, TJ, uh, I'm going to ask you to, to, to start off just telling us about yourself, if you would. Tell us uh, about the work that you do. Sure, yeah. So I live in Vancouver, BC, a playwright, director, and performer of exclusively new work. So as a kid, one of my formative experiences happened with a movie. One of the big ways my father and I bonded was going to the movies, and he brought me to see the movie Star Wars in the theaters when I was three years old. And my wow. life was changed at that moment. I wanted that. I wanted to be that. And then eventually I went to a theater school in Victoria, BC, and discovered that it wasn't quite my thing. I didn't want to be Hamlet. I didn't want to be any famous role. I didn't want to do what other people had done. I didn't quite fit in there. But then I discovered certain artists who did their own thing, and that seemed a lot more appealing to me. So I started writing my own thing. I had no training as a writer. I started applying to different theater festivals, mostly in Canada, and putting on autobiographical monologues, and then that became the foundation of my career. And then a good 10 years into that, I was introduced to the Enneagram by a very good old friend of mine who's an eight. And I wanted to have nothing to do with it. I didn't want to be put into a box, but he's an eight. So you can probably imagine how that conversation went. So he, he shoved you right in, right? Is he what did. You're saying. Yeah. Gotcha. And I am eternally grateful to him for doing that. So I read about the profile of type four and it hit me between the eyes. And I, my aversion to being put in a box was immediately diminished by the thrill that I had and the relief of being seen. And I hadn't even realized how much I'd craved that my entire life. But there was this pattern that ran through my entire life that was identified by somebody who'd never met me and helped me understand that I'm not bound by that story. So I went on to buy that book and then many others. I soon got together with my present-day partner. We've been together for 12 years. She is into the Enneagram as well. We're both type four. And then we started studying in person, and now we teach together. So along those lines, like during that same period, so this has been the last 12 years that we've been doing this work, as well as that we've been together, 
I've come out of my four shell in a number of ways and started working with others. I started doing monologues about the Enneagram, about here's what the Enneagram is, here's how it affected my life. And then that also led to collaborating with people in terms of working on ensemble shows. And every time I work with people on ensemble shows, the Enneagram is always a part of it, whether or not my, my collaborators realize it or not. So sometimes it'll be a blatant conversation and we all talk about what our types are and what our energies are and what our shadows are. And sometimes if I sense that someone might not be into it, I will use the ideas, but not the language. And then I've also stepped into teaching. So I teach solo performance, how to create one-person shows out of your ideas, out of your stories. And quite often the Enneagram comes involved in that. How so? Helping somebody delve into who they are. What's most important to you? And what are the layers behind the surface? So what is the sensitivity behind the surface of an eight? What is the hidden sadness or the pain that might be behind the surface of a seven? What are What is the hidden and buried joy behind the surface of a four? And how can we reach those layers to evoke a deeper and truer story, as well as an acceptance of who people are, letting them be exactly who they are, and encouraging to be the best version of that that they can possibly be, and that their creative work can come from that and can incorporate that. Very interesting. So this thing about not wanting to be put into a box, right? Um, um, certainly I can understand that. And I think everybody can understand that people, uh, nobody wants to be thought of as a stereotype. Nobody wants to be thought of as, you know, um, uh, having just unique singular qualities, right? Or, or uh, specific singular qualities that don't uh, recognize the complexity of people. I find this to be particularly a challenge for fours. Right. And it seems that every time I do a training in the corporate world, there's always somebody in the audience who says, you know, well, or in the, in the group, who says, well, you know, I can see why she's a one and he's a nine and she's a seven. But, you know, I'm not like anybody else. Right? Um, I, I don't really fit into one of these things. And my response is, well, we've got a category for you. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I'm curious, describe from the inside, if you would, what it's like to be a four. What it's like to be a four. Well, there's a lot of looking for who I am, a lot of deep inner searching. That's a central question that I come back to again and again. So it's not a surprise to me that telling somebody else's story in terms of being cast in a play just didn't quite fit, as well as there's been thousands upon thousands of people who've played Hamlet. Do I want to be just another one? But there's only one me. So my autobiographical shows are exploring, okay, who am I? What are the defining experiences of my life? And how can I evoke that? And how can I present that to the world? So there's an endless sense uh, search of who I am, what I'm about, what makes me tick, and what my story is. There's a tremendous investment in my story. And the story is usually a pretty sad one. So fours identify with something that most of us can identify with, which is having had an imperfect childhood, of having parents who didn't necessarily see me, didn't necessarily understand me, of having that sense at school or in other groups that everybody else knows something that I don't. That there was some critical day that maybe I was sick that day or that week. Maybe that was the week that I had chicken pox. And that's the week that they taught everybody all the essential things that they needed to know, how to get along, how to get by, how to have ease and social situations. And I missed that. And that's just indelibly stamped on me. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my early monologues were about exactly that. 
about how I didn't fit in or the things that I noticed that nobody else did. So there's a great prizing of my uniqueness. What are the ways I'm different from other people? What are, the, what are the points of beauty that I see that nobody else does? And this eternal search for being met by someone, maybe an idealized person that I have romantic love for or substitutes for my parents that I believe didn't see me or just audiences in general, just to have that sense of like, we see you, we hear you, we value you. Your unique perspective is acknowledged and appreciated. Thank you for being who you are. So TJ, what do you think made the people who saw these monologues click or be interested in them? There's something I've heard about that is still mysterious to me, even though I have witnessed it many times and I've been a participant in it many times, which is somehow the specific and personal can become universal. So this is something I've done in my monologues many, many times is I'll make them about specific experiences that I've had, things that I've thought, relationships that I've had, entirely specific to my life. And then people come up to me afterwards and tell me how much they relate about it. So how does one account for that? I don't really know other than to say that deep down, there are probably more things that unite us than separate us. So if you were thinking that your experiences were different or did you think that before prior to the monologues, that your experiences were more unique and then you realized that these experiences happened to a lot more people than you thought? Yes, absolutely. And strangely enough, that wasn't a threat. Mm. It didn't seem like I was selling out by having something in common with the rest of the world. It was a comfort to know that I have connections to the rest of the world because I'd spent so many years of my life believing that there weren't, that I didn't belong, that I wasn't wanted, that I didn't relate to others, that I didn't go through the same things others did. But it was on my terms. So it really was me saying, here's what I think. Here's what I feel. What do you think, world? And the world coming back and saying, yes. They were meeting me where I wanted to be met. The less productive side of that was for the first 10 years of it, it was firming up my story. Once I started getting into the Enneagram and personal work, I started questioning my story, which is a real growth piece for any four and for any of us in general. But I had different experiences in therapy, in transformative ceremonies involving ayahuasca or different substances like that. And certainly in conversations about the Enneagram that the story that I've been telling myself about my parents not seeing me, about the different people that I've been in love with not reciprocating, about not belonging, those are incomplete and that there was tremendous love in my childhood that my inner lawyer just buried because that evidence didn't support my story. So for the past 10 years, my, my monologues on stage have consistently been a matter of questioning my own story and then getting mirroring about that. And doing it in public makes me accountable to everybody that I do these stories to. And then that firms that up so that my ego has a much more difficult time telling me that I don't belong, telling me that I'm not loved when revealing that is met with love and belonging again and again and again. And then I develop love for this new, fuller version of myself. I expand my story as a four. TJ, the stereotype story of a four, that you have to be an artist, and you are actually you know, like a creative person, I mean, doing creative work. How, how do you really relate to this stereotyping story, and what is the real depth through your personal experience of the relationship between the four and creativity, the arts? Fours are always trying to express themselves in some way. 
And in many ways, there's a novel called Diary by Five, Chuck Palahniuk, who said that everything we do is a diary. Every single thing is a fingerprint. So because fours are so invested in our stories, creative art ends up often being autobiographical, sometimes directly, sometimes it's somewhat obfuscated exactly what represents what in me. But that extends to all areas of life. So I'm a transmitting four, my partner's a preserving four. So a big part of her personal expression comes in the way she dresses or in the decor of our living space. And I can imagine that extends to fours in any area of life whatsoever. But what I do, I want it to be unique. And I want it to be an expression of who I am and what I do. And one of my early teachers on the Enneagram described how she knew a career Marine who was a four, a woman. So this is a, an environment where there is the least possible room for personal expression. And yet she always had a rose in a vase on the windowsill. There was always one little thing that was emblematic of her sensitivity, of her love of beauty, and the fact that she had that and others didn't. So I think no matter what environment a four is going to be in, they're going to try and establish that. So you make an interesting point there when you draw the distinction between you and Lindsay, that uh, her expression is more around the decor, or it, it finds ex her creativity finds expression through the decor and the way she dresses, whereas yours is more around performance and the things that support performance in a way. And that's not the sum total of it. She's also a singer-songwriter. She's gotcha. in incredibly sensitive to music. She loves right. creating music. She loves performing. But the sensitivity to decor is something she does on a daily basis. Right, right, right. So tell me about the transmitting instinctual bias and this need for creativity and expression. And do you see a distinction in kind of the impulses for creativity that are related to transmitting domain and those that are related to the four strategy? Yeah, so in the transmitting domain, there's much more of an impulse to shine, to broadcast, to transmit. So this can be this can happen in many different media. For me, it happens on stage. So a one-person show with me on stage, and it's a bare stage. There's nobody else to look at. There is me telling my story, feeling my feelings. Hello, world, check this out. And the more people I have in the audience, the better. Although if there's only four people, I will do it to those four people. And then there's a particular joy in that. I will absolutely blow those four people's minds, or at least that's what I'm hoping to do every time. So there's just, the scale really goes up of like, how far can I get with this? How far can I take this? There's also a much greater impulse towards narrow casting, towards, you know, if I just want one person to be aware of me, or fusion, you know, like I read a lot. I have a lot of books in my collection. I like to have them too. I don't ever get them from the library. I don't ever borrow from them. I buy them. I keep them. And there's nothing. I'm always hunting for the book that's going to suck me right in so that there is nothing but me and this magic world that is in front of me. And I'm just going to read one more page. Oh, no, I'm just going to read one more chapter. I'm just going to read four more. Okay, forget it. I'm just going to read for the rest of the day. Like, I'm always hunting for that. And that comes with being a cinephile, with being an audiophile, like more, 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 let's, let's bring that in. And I really do see it as fuel that supercharges me and then helps me broadcast even bigger next time. Yeah. 
Interesting. The first time I know about you, TJ, I, I watched, I think it was a lecture by you about creativity and the relations between the creativity and the instinctual biases. And actually, I was impressed the way you, you made the relationship between the process of creativity and, and each of the three instinctual biases. So is it, is it really, I mean, did I get it right that you see different uh, angle of creativity in each uh, of the three instinctual biases or do you see the transmitting more of uh, uh, related to creativity or how do you see it? I see the different instinctual biases. Uh, there's, there's a couple of ways to answer that. One is that each of the instinctual biases is an important part of the, of the puzzle. So Lindsay and I teach a workshop specifically on applying the instinctual biases to the creative process in general. So the transmitting, transmitting is very much related to inspiration. What activates my energy? Where do my ideas come from? And how can I induce that? We're very used to thinking of inspiration as something, something that just happens on its own, like it's coming externally. But each of us knows different things that do activate us, that get us excited, that light us up. And we can induce that. We can do that deliberately. And we all need that. And we all have the ability to do that. Preserving, I see very much as what are the different things in my life that I can do in order to sustain this fire? So the transmitting gets the spark going. The preserving instinct is what turns that spark into a nice glowing bed of coals. So what are the different things in my life that will facilitate my creativity, including getting a good night's rest or being well-nourished or having financial stability so that I'm not scattered and so that I'm not bringing the dregs of my attention to the creative work that I want to do? And then navigating is very much my ability to understand others and to work with others. And very few creative acts are entirely solo affairs. And so it might be in terms of finding collaborators or finding mentors or who's in the artistic community uh, where I live and how can that support me, whether it's as an audience or funding bodies or somebody who might produce me. So there's that element to it too. And then another angle on that is there's certain avenues of expression that are more neatly in line with the different instinctual biases, although definitely not exclusive. So preservers, I find, often thrive in things like home decor or cooking or gardening or crafting, practical things that are part of the physical environment or the physical life. And many of these things are denigrated sometimes even by the people who practice them as not being creative arts. There's many people who garden who wouldn't describe themselves as creative or as artists, but they are cultivating something. They're bringing something into existence that isn't there before. And the way somebody gardens can absolutely be a creative expression of who they are. What kind of beauty is there? Or how is it arranged? Or what kind of brilliance is there in the way things are combined? Navigating is very much related to how can I effectively collaborate? Many, many avenues of creative expression involve more than one person. And if I can do that effectively, if I can read people really well, then I know who's a good collaborator or when are they telling me what I want to hear or who can tell me what I don't want to hear, but will actually help me. Who's got complementary skills, et cetera, et cetera, because nobody can do everything. And then transmitting domain is very much about that moment of shining of getting out there. And I've worked with many people, and because I use the Enneagram in my creative work, there's many conversations about the Enneagram. Somebody who's on stage shining isn't inherently a transmitter. I know navigators, I know preservers who can get on stage and shine brilliantly 
It's just that's not necessarily their home base. And in some cases, they have to be coaxed to be there. There can be some shyness around it. There can be some embarrassment, some sense that this isn't necessarily where I belong. But if somebody else believes in them, then they will go up there and then blow me away. Awareness to Action offers a unique approach to applying the Enneagram professionally with leaders and organizations, as well as for personal development. What makes us stand apart is our Enneagram expertise and focus on understanding human nature. We know people because we see people. And this is a skill set that can be taught and learned. Human nature is complex and simple at the same time. Our mission is to help people see clearly and act accordingly. Why? Because the ability to see ourselves and others clearly and honestly is essential. It enables us to act in more adaptive and useful ways. The multicultural team at Awareness to Action will help you learn tools and practices to become more aware and also to understand and engage people more effectively. Learn more at awarenesstoaction.com. Join us at 2021 for exciting learning opportunities. When you were talking before Tamar's question about reading the books and watching movies and all of that made me think that, believe it or not, there's so many times when sevens are confused with fours. And in theory, we would think that they're just almost the opposite. But when you see them in action, many times they're doing similar things. And kind of this gluttony or this desire to kind of uh, this fusion with uh, these things that you mentioned, how would you describe it as what are the differences with a seven? The differences with, between a seven and a four as transmitters or their desire to just like open wide and give me all the good stuff might be in terms of the tone of the stuff that they gravitate towards. And again, this, a lot of this depends on the level of emotional health of the particular seven and the particular four that we're talking about. So a four or a seven who's really ensconced in the machinations of their type will probably gravitate towards stuff that speaks more to the energy and the story of that type. So a seven stereotypically might be more inclined towards comedy and a, a four more towards drama. A stereotypical seven might have not that much patience for stuff that's for melancholy music, for instance. Whereas a stereotypical four might consider upbeat music to be trite. So both of these things might be at each other's throats. But the more work somebody does on themselves, the more they open themselves up to stuff that's outside their immediate domain. And as a four, that's been part of my work, is warming up to electronic music and synth pop and dance music and realizing, I love that stuff. And it actually reminds me of when I was a kid and I listened to Top 40 music without self-consciousness. And there's a part of me that's still that, and I love that. And similarly, it is a beautiful moment, and this has happened in collaboration with sevens or in close friendships, when a seven will let you past the exterior and say that, yes, I have a lot of sadness too, and here's the time that my heart was broken, and, or here's just a movie that makes me cry every time with compassion or in compassion for myself. So, so this is something I'm curious about on this topic. Um, there are times when I read something, an example that comes to mind, I recently read or tried to read uh, Patti Smith's latest book, right? So I love Patti Smith as a musician, right? And uh, just adore her. And I thought to myself, okay, 
I'm going to read this book because I'm curious to hear what it is. And as I'm reading it, it struck me as so foolish that I was taken out of, of the, of the story, right? Because it almost felt too stereotypically foolish. Okay. Which surprised me because, you know, Patty Smith's an artist who's been around a long time. Now she hasn't been writing books for that long, but again, she's, I think, has matured. So what I'm curious, where I'm going with this, I'm curious how your work has started to change as you have learned to let go of that foreness, right? I mean, I think with any uh, development, we have to start to understand ourselves, and that requires kind of diving in to these kind of stereotypical pieces of ourselves, right? Every eight has to go through their, you know, their Hemingway phase or something like that, right? And, uh, you know, some never get out of it. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, um, and, and so fours go through this sort of uh, catcher in the rye stage, you know, almost. So how has your work progressed as you've moved through that? I've stopped defending my story. I've made it a habit of questioning my story and looking for things that connect me with others rather than shore up my differences with others. And I've become much more comfortable with being behind the scenes. So something that's tremendously pleasing for me is when I co-write or direct a show. So I'm not the person on stage, and I always sit at the back of the audience, and I can watch the audience at work. And I can watch them react to the piece. I can see jokes hit them. And that's the thing, is I'm also much more inclined to comedy now, to just collective celebration. And things that bring us together, things that bring us joy, and really seeing that as an art. And noticing in myself that even as I do it, my inner critic gives me a pass, that I'm not selling out as a four by creating comedy, by creating something that's popular. But I'm, I'm doing it in a four-ish way. I, a, a big portion of my career, and actually the most successful shows I've ever been involved in, have been pop culture parodies. I co-created and directed a one-man Star Wars trilogy that debuted in 2001, which is still happening. And my great friend Charlie Ross, who does this, travels the world, recreating the original Star Wars trilogy with his voice and body. And he is raising a family and paying a mortgage by being the Star Wars guy. And that led to a one-man Lord of the Rings a Batman parody. I've since worked on parodies of The Avengers, Stranger Things, Game of Thrones, Sex in the City, and a recent show involving chick flicks. I'm now currently working on a parody of Mad Men. These are popular properties, and it's delightful for me to notice that, yeah, I don't mind the fact that these are popular. There's no part of me that wants to do a one-man Bergman or anything like that, like <laughs> something that, that shores up the fact that I like things nobody else does. I gotcha. love being integrated into the world. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean giving up that I'm a four. Yeah, great. I like that. Yeah, so, so, so you started to mention some names as examples. It would be interesting to see how do you see from your perspective uh, whether uh, the instinctual bias or the strategy of some of the filmmakers, directors, let's say, how, how this, this combination impacting uh, impacted their outcome i mean the, the the their creativity the end result of their creativity something i love is going through the body of work of a given artist and looking for recurring themes motifs anything like that and i was doing that long before i ever discovered the enneagram so now the enneagram adds that layer to it and in some cases artists are prominent enough 
in consciousness that they're often used as exemplars of different Enneagram strategies. And sometimes I agree with what different people have written, sometimes I don't, but this is always in my mind. It can't not be in my mind as I'm watching a movie or a TV show or listening to music. So with if, if the listening audience were able to see my book collection, they would see that if there's an author that I like, I don't have one book of theirs, I have 20. And I also have biographies of them. I have volumes of their letters. I have their unpublished work that was published posthumously, that kind of thing, because I love, like, let's dive in there. Let's see who this person is. How did they tick? And if what they're really uh, exemplifying is the way a five operates or the way an eight operates, then I start looking for that. And the more of that that I see, the more it gives me that much more of an insight into how that strategy works. So this is one of my great passions in life, and I don't think I'm ever going to run out. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. I think this is a good time to um, share with the audience, uh, TJ, the project that you and I have been talking about. Uh, so we've been doing this Enneagram in a Movie podcast where we have looked at the uh, three instinctual biases and the nine uh, Enneagram types um, through the lens of one movie each. Right. And, um, and then, of course, we got into the inner triangle and the core qualities and accelerators through the uh, three of the Rocky movies. Okay. But uh, so after this episode, we're going to take a little bit of a break. And then you and I have been talking about a project where we look at the body of work of a handful of directors and talk about some Enneagram themes. Okay. So um, for people who are listening and have been enjoying this podcast, that will be coming up. Uh, we'll probably get started, kick that off in a couple few months down the road. Let's talk briefly about a few of the directors that we've thought of and how we see their Enneagram type reflected in either them or their work. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Yeah. One of the ones that comes to mind, and I think it always blows my mind, it blows people's mind when I make this suggestion that I believe Clint Eastwood is a nine. Okay. I think he's a transmitting nine. And I think this nine-ish theme comes up in most of his work, right? If you watch, uh, for example, Unforgiven. And one of my favorite ways to spend a Saturday afternoon is to watch the outlaw Josie Wales and Unforgiven back to back, right? As kind of the two extremes of the Western experience. Both very nine-ish themes in that. And, you know, except for Dirty Harry and a few other roles where he's trying to, he's playing an eight, there's a lot of nine themes in his work. What other directors come to mind for you, TJ, where their Enneagram type is on display? Steven Spielberg and Seven. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous, well, for one thing, he was the wunderkind. That often happens with Sevens. 
And there's just such an open embrace of all things film. You just really get the sense that he's having the time of his life yeah. making movies and creating stories that take us into different worlds that excite us. That, you know, he revolutionized film in many ways. Mm. Uh, another yeah. one, Stanley Kubrick, very famous five. Mm -hmm. And he's got the, the darkness of the five, the love of the weirdness of the five, as well as the patience of a five. Mm. A lot of these movies have a really slow rhythm, and that doesn't <laughs> yeah. seem to bother them at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Kubrick, even something like Full Metal Jacket, right? When you watch Full Metal Jacket, you're sitting there for great stretches of it thinking, okay, when is something going to happen? And the background is so sparse and so bare and, and everything. And, of course, the, the classic is 2001, right, where holy cow you know it takes 45 minutes for anything to happen okay so that's great another thing you mentioned with spielberg is i think he really wrestles with emotional pain in his movies he wrestles to sit with it if you think about the ending of saving private ryan for example where he tacks on this kind of happy sort of ending you know so it's almost like he gets into this suffering but can't quite commit to it, which I think happens very often in his movies. Yeah, so interesting idea. Anybody else come to mind as a director who um, captures a theme? Terrence Malick possibly mm -hmm. is a poor making movies that are just have this huge sweeping beauty to them entirely on his own terms. You know, I got turned on to him from the movie days of heaven Mm -hmm. And the storytelling in Days of Heaven is incredibly sparse. And I actually know of it from a documentary about cinematography called Visions of Light, the Art of Cinematography. And the cinematographer talked about how they filmed most of that movie in the magic hour, which is a euphemism for about 20 minutes after the sun is set, but there's still light in the sky. Mm -hmm. So it would take them all day to set up a shot, and they would have about 20 minutes of useful filming time. So it took a really long time to make the movie. The movie wasn't a particular hit. But when you watch it, it just breaks your heart with how gorgeous it is. Yeah. And it is a sad story. It is. And I, I think probably the only linear movie he ever made was Badlands, right? right. Everything else has been indirect, we'll say, right? Um, uh, Maria Jose, you're a big fan of uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, right? Uh, Tried to watch it, but <laughs> haven't been able to. to me, it's in the category of unwatchable. But maybe <laughs> I need to be more mature to enjoy it. So I'll give it another try. <laughs> Uh, Tree of Life is a rather nonlinear movie, and uh, whenever ever anybody asks me what it's about, I just say, I don't know, but uh, but it's cool to watch, right? Just for uh, anybody listening, uh, again, I think that uh, if you're interested in directors and you're interested in Enneagram types, you might want to tune in for when we do that. Uh, we'll call it the season two of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast and the director's season let's see another one i think we're gonna to have to talk about is david fincher and uh mm -hmm. the five but no. who has been quite open about the fact that he uses the enneagram to direct his actors yes yes there was an article in the paper some years ago where he had the actors in girl with the dragon tattoo read uh Reson hudson's uh books in preparation right. and i guess i should correct myself saying he hasn't been open about it he didn't say a thing <laughs> it's his actors that talk about it. Which 
sounds even more like a pie. Exactly right. Exactly right. All right. So, TJ, we asked you to um, identify some movies that you thought, uh, movies or TV shows that uh, you thought captured some Enneagram types or Enneagram-related themes. So, I, and, I, and I pulled out some of the ones that I have seen and, uh, you know, feel conversant to talk about. So I'm going to go through the list and ask you to kind of describe it, right? So um, uh, let's start with one that pretty much everybody here, I think, has seen, uh, Star Wars. And you made an interesting point about it, more about George Lucas than the movies itself. Tell, about, tell us about that. Yeah, George Lucas sent an assistant of his to do the training, the Riso Hudson Enneagram training, who brought oh, really? it back to him, and he read it and then self-identified as a nine. Oh, interesting. So I've kind of woven that into all of my thoughts, because I don't think Luke Skywalker is a nine. No. Uh, probably more of a six, possibly a three. But mm -hmm. either way, I think he's a cipher for George Lucas himself and for a part of himself that he'd repress. So there's certain commonalities in their stories in that Luke Skywalker is a pilot. He's got a a land speeder that floats a couple of feet above above the ground on his home planet. And he lives on a desert planet, which he describes as being the farthest away from the glowing center of the universe. George Lucas grew up in Modesto, California, which isn't that far from San Francisco, but supposedly he was really ashamed of it. And when he was a film student at USC, and if anybody asked him where he was from, he would just say, near San Francisco. And he was a hot rodder. That was his big thrill, was building and drag racing his own cars as a teenager. And then he got in a big accident and almost lost his life and then came out of that thinking, you know, I only have one life. I think I'm going to commit to what I really want to do and went to USC film school. And there became a favorite of Francis Ford Coppola's, who wasn't a student at the time. He'd made some feature films, but Coppola just saw him, loved him, and championed him and helped him get his film career going. And his first film was about, or, yeah, his first film was American Graffiti, I believe. It was his first feature, which was about drag racing and hot rodding, right. very much right. emblematic of the life that he lived in California. Small California. I think Petaluma yeah. was filmed in. Yeah. And then he was part of the generation that revolutionized Hollywood. So in the late 60s, Hollywood was growing stale. The studio system was starting to crumble. And then this surprise hit, Easy Rider, came out, which was about bikers. And it's abstract. It's got some experimental film techniques in it. Dennis, Dennis Hopper, a four, for sure. Oh, four. oh interesting. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Dennis right. Hopper. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that became a big hit, and the studios just said, okay, how did that happen? And I guess we need to get some more youth in here. And then this infiltration of rebels came in and revolutionized Hollywood, one of whom was Francis Ford Coppola. So eventually when, when Lucas made Star Wars, there's a lot of different stories about where Star Wars came from. It's in many ways inspired by the Vietnam War, the idea of a low-technology uh, group of rebels beating a high-technology dominant imperial force. But There's a lot of Kurosawa in there, too. Yes, yes. Tremendous amount of, you could say ripoff, you could say inspiration <laughs> from different samurai movies. Some of it yeah. directly lifted, yeah. Uh, but something I see in there is that it's also the story of him and his generation of rebels that came in and took over this big, stale system. And he has acknowledged that Han Solo is directly modeled on Francis Ford Coppola. And oh, interesting. There's a quote that he said about Han Solo where he's basically describing Francis Ford Coppola. He said, he's one of the best. He's outwitted the Empire on numerous occasions and has made some very fast deals. One of his problems is that he gambles quite heavily, and that's where he loses most of his money. He's tough and sharp, but never manages to scrape together enough to get any power. 
He's slightly self-destructive, and he sort of enjoys being on the brink of disaster. You might meet him, and he may be worth $10 billion, and the next time you meet him, he's up to his ears in debt. So that's both Han Solo and Francis Ford Coppola. It is Coppola. Yeah. So the theme of Star Wars, which he said quite explicitly in a documentary about the making of, is that there is nothing more powerful than the human spirit. And the climax of Star Wars is when Luke turns off his targeting computer and trusts the Force. And he combined the hotshot piloting that he learned when he was just a kid on a desert planet with this union with the mystical beyond and also getting in tune with his own feelings. And it's that combination that destroys the Death Star and wins everything for everyone. And Darth Vader is such an effective villain, not only because he's so ferocious of a fighter, but because he's more machine than man. He's got buttons on his chest and, you know, you can hear the sound of his breathing because he's on life support. So the theme of Star Wars is don't get caught up in your machinery. There's nothing more powerful than the human spirit. Hmm. And the movie comes out and it's an unbelievable success and it revolutionizes Hollywood and filmmaking. And then little by little, George Lucas became more and more taken up with technology and became more and more remote from human beings. And something that I'd heard in another documentary is that he's never been an enthusiastic director of actors. He doesn't like talking with actors. He gives them as little as possible. He would rather have somebody else do that. But then he came out and he made the prequels in the early 2000s. And there's very little humanity in them. There's no location filming. They're unwatchable as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. And the reason they're unwatchable is that it's all this technology and no humanity. So I'm curious because um, in our exchange, you said, that, I think, that you see George Lucas as a nine. Yeah. Right? Draw the connection there to me with all the things you just said. Yeah. So he's a nine that learned how to step into his greatness. That's a big part of the growth pattern for any nine is acknowledging that I have greatness within me. I have talents. I have gifts. And as I strive to be peaceful, that's actually not at odds with stepping into the world and shining. And he did, and he did it brilliantly. And then he took that fame and then retreated into his own world of toys, literal toys in many cases, because he's in charge of the merchandising of Star Wars, but also toys in terms of computer-generated technology and making movies about that and has dismissed any criticism of his work by saying these are kids' movies Mm. and doesn't seem to listen to anybody else and doesn't seem to want to let anybody else in and just kind of goes and does his own thing. Mm. And And it's that kind of resistance to change, resistance to impulse that we see in nines. And tremendous stubbornness. Mm -hmm. So a nine is in many ways an immovable object. And that's what George Lucas absolutely became. So he kind of exists as a cautionary tale. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm not an expert on these movies, but with what you're saying, it looks like he had some message to send and he didn't send it directly, but he chose a way to represent it. It had nothing to do with reality, but was all about what was going on when you were saying that it represented Vietnam or the rebels uh, that he was part of that group. And then he hid that message kind of and created a fantasy world, uh, which could be a bit nine-ish, you know. I, I make my statement, but it's uh, kind of a passive-aggressiveness, right? passive-aggressive, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With a happy ending. Yeah. You know there's going to be a happy ending. You know everybody's going to be okay in his movies. That's part of his signature as a filmmaker. 
Mm. So one of the things you put in your list that really caught my attention because it is up there on my list of the joys in life is Better Call Saul. Okay, the spinoff from Breaking, Breaking Bad. Bad. Yeah. Okay, it's actually a prequel um, for the most part. So two main characters, uh, Jimmy McGill and uh, shoot, I'm drawing a blank on the woman's name. Kim. Kim. Yes. Kim Wexler. Kim Wexler, great, thank you. Tell us about Jimmy McGill and Kim Wexler. So Jimmy really seems to me to be a big old seven. Mm. He's shucking and jiving, he's improvising, he's charming, he's funny, he's disrespectful of authority, he's incredibly quick thinking, which makes him a brilliant lawyer. Yeah. Tell you what, let me let me back this up first, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but for those of you who have not seen Better Call Saul. It is a TV series. Um, uh, let's just, I think maybe going into the sixth season now. It's a spinoff of one of the characters or some of the characters actually from Breaking Bad, the TV series from some years back. And um, the actor is uh, Bob Odenkirk, who plays Saul Goodman, whose real name is Jimmy McGill. And this is about what happens to him before the events of Breaking Bad. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, TJ. Yeah, and when we meet him in Breaking Bad, which happens later than the events in Better Call Saul, he's he's a corrupt lawyer. He's the mm. lawyer who can get people who really have committed crimes off. He'll find loopholes. He'll do it. He'll cheat. He'll do it. Never whatever he needs to do. And he's a TV lawyer. He's one of those lawyers that does his own yeah. ads. And yeah, he'll he'll get you out of prison. Yes. So when we meet him at the beginning, even of though Call you deserve Saul, to be there, right? <laughs> absolutely. All right. But if you pay him. He'll he'll work his magic. So when yeah. we meet him at the beginning of Better Call Saul, he's not a lawyer yet. He's working in the mailroom of a prestigious firm in Albuquerque. And one of his workmates is Kim Wexler, who very much comes off as a one. So she's following all the proper channels. And she's dedicated. And she's intelligent. And she's very idealistic. And yet she has this friendship and a romantic partnership with Jimmy, which is something that I've seen sometimes between ones and sevens. There can be this kind of attraction to the fun that a seven brings, as well as the desire to transgress as well sometimes. Like, it can be fun to walk on the wild side sometimes, but then I'll come back and remember that I am in this for the right reasons. I'm a good person, and I want the world to be better, and I want my efforts to go in the direction of making the world better. We talk about uh, the contradiction of each of the Enneagram types, and this comes from the repression of that connecting point, right? So for the one, it's about the repression of the strategy of point seven. And what happens is it gets pushed into the shadow, right? And then it starts to leak out. And we see this in Kim throughout Better Call Saul. For example, when every so often she'll call him and say, hey, let's go scam somebody at the bar. Uh, sort of thing, right? So uh, that is common with ones. Go ahead, Maria. Yeah, and there's also sevens create space for ones to just let that seven aspects of them go. I mean, to show them. I think that you know that there's not going to be no judgment from their end. And so it just makes it more comfortable to let go and expose yourself more than it would be with someone different so i think that so it's there it's just easier to show it with a seven a seven says to a one without saying it in these words although they might you don't have to be perfect with me you can be silly you can break the rules you don't have to do something productive with your time we can have fun together 
And that can be really energizing and joyful to be around for anybody. So that's part of the relationship with that. And yeah, who would expect a one to go along with a seven con man scamming people in a bar? Now, it's always something that doesn't really have particularly high stakes. So in one scene that I remember, they were scamming some loudmouth blowhard who was an investment guy. And the scam was to get him to pick up the bar tab. So they pretended that they were a couple of yokels who inherited a bunch of money and that they would be easy marks for him. And what he didn't realize was that the order of tequila they kept ordering was about a thousand dollars a shot it was this really exclusive thing so at the end they leave him and he offers to pick up the tab not knowing how much it's going to be but he thinks he's roped a whale like he's okay i got a couple of fools here and i'm gonna make a lot of money off him but he doesn't know that they they gave him false names no. and and that he's stuck with this bill for potentially tens of thousands of dollars and the joke's on him so, so draw the connection to point four. You had something in your notes, TJ, about uh, yeah. point four with this. Go ahead. So there was this moment when part of what Kim does as a lawyer at one point in one of the seasons is she becomes involved in a bank and she's going to be the one that helps them expand. So she's doing a lot of the just legal finagling of like, what are the laws in different states if we want to expand to different states and let's make that happen. And she's very good at it. And she's working extremely hard. She's just left the law firm that paid for her law school. She started her own just firm on her own. She's struggling to get clients, but this is working. This is a good client, and she wants to show up for them. And she works herself so hard that she ends up falling asleep at the wheel on a long drive to a different location where they're going to put a new branch of this bank. And she gets in an accident. Now, she's not hurt tremendously and nobody else is involved. She just drives off the side of the road, but she wakes up when the airbag, when she smacks into the airbag and she's hospitalized or rather she's bedridden at home. So she's got a cast and she sits at home and there's this one scene where she's sitting at home and there's a big pile of videotapes and she's watching her favorite movies again and again. And what's her favorite movie? To Kill a Mockingbird. And who's her favorite character? Atticus Finch. Of course. Famous one, one yeah. played by Gregory Peck, also a one, and she talks about mm -hmm. how that's what made her want to be a lawyer in the first place, is to make a difference. And now what am I doing with myself? I'm helping a bank expand. Yes. She starts feeling sorry for herself, just like a four, and she starts dipping cheese in cheese. She's got slices <laughs> of cheese, and she's dipping it into a, into a pot of cream cheese and snacking on that. So she's feeling sorry for herself, and doubling down on her story of look at what a failure my life turned out as. Hmm. So yeah. you see the connection between both seven and four to a one with this beautifully rich character. Yeah. Great. Uh, for anybody listening who has not yet seen Better Call Saul, I, I think it's one of the best things on television in years. Uh, for me, I think it surpasses Breaking Bad as far as quality of um, television. So can you big, watch big, it big. without having watched um, Breaking Bad? You yeah. can. Yeah, absolutely. It stands on its own. It's. Uh, I find it's you know more interesting to watch because you'll see characters who later show up in Breaking Bad. And as each season goes on, you can feel it getting closer and closer to the events of Breaking Bad. So I think that gives a richer experience, but it certainly stands on its own. And Would you agree, TJ? Yes, absolutely. It is self-contained in that world. If you know Breaking Bad as well, that adds to it. And one of my favorite characters in it is an eight from Philadelphia. Yes, yes. Um, Mike. Right. Mike Ermentrout. That's the character. Mike Ermentrout. Yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. 
played by the great, great character actor. Shoot, what is his name? Um, John, Jonathan Banks, I believe. Thank you, Jonathan Banks. Uh, I think first time I saw him, he had a bit role in 48 Hours and uh, has gone on to do a number of things. So a big, big fan of his. All right. Uh, plays a Philadelphia, an ex-Philadelphia cop turned thug uh, now. With a great love for his granddaughter. So you've yes. got that layer too, you know, the tender heart of an eight, as yes. well as just how grounded his strength is. He's not, you never see him beat his chest. You never see him yell. He doesn't look as big as, you know, like a typical thug, but he's just got such power and strength often yeah. from stillness. Yes. And he's always the baddest man in the room, you know, just uh, so it's uh, a thousand uh, yard it, stare. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great, great character by a great character actor. So good. Yeah. Uh, Breaking Bad. I'm sorry. uh, Better Call Saul. Highly recommended. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Mad Men. Speaking of AMC television series, uh, Mad Men, about the advertising agency and the advertising executive Don Draper which was all the rage for about five years. It's interesting to me that Mad Men has not had the long-lasting cultural impact that one thought it would, given how popular it was. Tell us how you see Mad Men through Enneagram lenses. Don Draper is the poster child of type three. Uh, As often happens with threes in American culture, I don't know if this is global, but the American dream is to come up from obscurity and that anybody can rise to the top. And that's exactly Don Draper's story is he grew up poor and he was raised in a brothel and he had a horrible childhood. And then at one point reinvented himself, changed. He actually stole somebody's identity. Remember it was during, I think what the Korean war, maybe he took somebody else's identity. Fast track. Yeah, exactly. To reinvention. Yeah. And then pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and got an entry in the world of advertising, having no experience in it, and then rose to the top of the game and became one of the most sought-after creative directors in the industry. And all the while, as we're watching him over the course of seven seasons, and the seventh season is in two parts, so it's kind of eight seasons, we see just how dysfunctional his life is because his wife really doesn't know anything about him. He doesn't open up to her. He doesn't have a best friend that he opens up to. He is simply on his own track, doing his own thing, and he always looks perfect, and he can always deliver. And over the course of it, he drinks more and more, and he philanders more and more, and his life collapses around him, but he can always bring it until eventually, eventually, he's given what he wants, which is his firm is bought by the biggest, most prestigious firm in the industry, and they give him the biggest, most prestigious client in the world, which is... Coca-Cola. 
And it's funny because the way the series ends, not to ruin it, but if you haven't seen it by now, I'm not going to worry about giving away spoilers. He goes off to find himself at Esalen Institute, which uh, we were talking about before the call. And while he's there seeking his inner Don Draper, he comes up with the uh, the idea of the commercial about teaching the world to sing for Coca-Cola. Right. So again, it shows that, you know, that search for the self still sort of leads to commerce in a way. Right? <laughs> he does have a big epiphany. You know, he deals with some of his buried sadness. There's a scene in a workshop where somebody else shares. You don't hear Don speaking from his heart. Somebody else shares and it moves right. him so much. He steps up and embraces the man and then later meditating comes up with that idea. So the idea is, and it's very emblematic of American culture as well, is like there is nothing that we can't co-opt. There is no revelation so pure and holy that we can't use it to sell Coca-Cola. Speaking of that transformation, another character I want to talk about, actually more an actor, you put into your notes about Arnold Schwarzenegger, who for me epitomizes the transmitting three. Okay, so Arnold, um, you know, everybody knows who Arnold Schwarzenegger is, but he started, again, poor, um, growing up in a house with no home and, I'm sorry, no heat, and I don't even know if they had running water or something. He always, uh, everybody thinks that he always wanted to be a bodybuilder to start with, but he actually wanted to be an actor when he was young. He um, he wanted pretty much to be Steve Reeves. Jose? I think he wanted to be a bodybuilder because it was something that he could excel at. It was so, something that he could be really good at. Yeah, so it was. But the reason he wanted to be a bodybuilder is because he wanted to ultimately go to Hollywood and follow the path of Steve Reeves, the bodybuilder who became an actor and ended up starring in Hercules movies, right? So he kind of modeled himself on that, ended up being the, you know, the, the greatest bodybuilder of the period and leveraged the way he started making his money first of all, was there was an earthquake in California and a lot of people's pavements and, you know, walls and yard walls and that sort of thing were broken up. And he puts an ad in the newspaper, European stonemasons available. And he gets all of his European bodybuilding friends to get together. They didn't know anything about, you know, stonemasonry or anything like that. But he made a ton of money in doing that, replacing people's uh, pavements by using the labor of his bodybuilding friends, then invested that into real estate, et cetera, et cetera. So he went on to be very, very successful. But you made an interesting point, uh, TJ, in your um, notes to me about the transformation of Arnold Schwarzenegger as a person over time and how it's reflective of the three. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, so he achieved every goal you could think that somebody would want. He literally became the biggest movie star in the world. And action movies travel over international borders better than any other genre because they're not dialogue-focused. And if there's any aspect of his acting that he's not famous for, it's dialogue. It's the physical stuff. Or, you know, the words he says are very few. So he achieved that. And then he became governor of California. He also married a Kennedy. And it's Which is hard a big to, deal. Yeah. Particularly for a Republican. Yes. He squared the impossible circle. It really is incredible. And I read a biography of him that came out uh, before the scandal of him having had an affair and children with his housekeeper, where it was spoken about by some of his friends saying there is a, I don't know if it's in the constitution or otherwise, but one of the requirements to become president of the United States is you need to have been born in the United States. And one of his friends said, if you think that's going to stop him from becoming president, then you don't know Arnold. 
So he had the ambition to go right to the top, and it looked like absolutely nothing could stop him until that scandal did. Hmm. So he'd been having an affair with his housekeeper. He'd had children with her. His wife left him, and it seemingly his career was in ruins. And then by this point, I believe he's in his 60s, and the movies, the action movie genre that he epitomized in the 80s had really fallen out of fashion. There are still action movies, but I don't know that there are any popular actors that only do action movies. The actors that you see in action movies now are people like Robert Downey Jr. or Christian Bale or Matt Damon, Oscar nominees, basically. People who do all kinds of movies. Well, what happened was uh, back in the 80s, they would get people who were known for their physical prowess, uh, martial artists like Chuck Norris and Jean-Claude Van Damme, that sort of thing, and put them into movies. But they realized these people are terrible actors, right? So they're good action uh, characters. And they eventually realized that it was easier to teach an actor to do the physical things than it was to take a karate guy and teach him how to act. And then on top of that, I think culturally, we just started to turn a corner around a convention in Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and many action movies, which is the hero murders people and then cracks a joke. (laughs) That's Uh pretty psychopathic if you think about it, but that was the kind of thing that would elicit an applause break from an audience in a movie theater, and the joke was always specific to how he had killed that person. So in Predator at one point, he stabs a guy with a machete, driving him right into a wall, and then says to him, stick around. Like <laughs> He built his career on that. And then if you watch action movies now, the heroes still often do kill opponents, but those opponents are now robots, mm. or they're aliens, or they're orcs, or they're clones, or something, because just culturally, we've started to turn the corner on, like, maybe it's not okay to kill people, much less kill them in large numbers, especially the the victims of these murders were often brown people. So mm-hmm. it's a white guy killing a lot of brown people and audiences of white people going, yeah, that's what we want. So that had gone out of fashion, as well as the fact that he'd passed his prime physically. So if that's your top draw as an actor, the fact that you've got this muscular body, well, what happens when you're 60? What happens when you're 70? And then these movies have fallen out of fashion. He came back and he did a cameo in The Expendables and he did a movie with uh, Sylvester Stallone and did another action movie and... It was just one bomb after another. So now what do you do with the rest of your life, especially now that your political ambitions are basically kaput after a scandal like that? So what has he done? And this is emblematic of the journey of the three, integrating some of the healthy six, is commit to causes that are bigger than himself, bigger than his own glory, bigger than his own career or success or wealth that benefit everyone. So he's become a huge champion of clean energy, even though he's a Republican. He's the Republican saying to other Republicans, let's have solar power. This is a better way to go. He's been an outspoken critic of Donald Trump. And my favorite example of the Arnold that is the Arnold now, which I don't think anyone in the 80s would have predicted, happened when he posted a picture of himself with his arms around some athletes from the Special Olympics. And then there was a troll that commented on this on Reddit. And I'll read what the what the troll said and pardon the vile language in it, and then Schwarzenegger's response. So this had many, many comments, but one of them was from some some poster, the Special Olympics make no sense. The Olympics are for the best, best athletes in the world to compete against each other to determine who is the best. Having retards competing is doing the opposite. Schwarzenegger responds, as stupid and evil as this comment is, I'm not going to delete it or ban you yet. 
because it's a teachable moment. You have two possible paths ahead. Right now, I guarantee you that these athletes have more courage, compassion, brains, skill, actually more of every positive human quality than you. So take their path. You could learn from them and try to challenge yourself to give back, to add something from the world. Or you can stay on your path and keep being a sad, pitiful, jealous internet troll who adds nothing to the world but mocks anyone who does out of small-minded jealousy. I know what you really want is attention, so let me be clear. If you choose to keep going this way, no one will ever remember you. Yikes. <laughs> that, well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a great last line. Um, and, um, but, but that whole message is um, really something. And for me, I think this is an important lesson around threes that is often overlooked in the Enneagram world. Because I think that in the Enneagram literature, the perception of threes is more early Don Draper than late Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And I think he embodies um, this capacity for true transformation, right? Uh, uh, not just the achievement that he was so focused on early in life, but this ability to really grow a heart, right? Um, or to get in touch with the heart. Threes, I think, are pictured like almost without a heart. And we've talked about how some somebody said to you that they didn't have a soul. But And my experience, even if they're not kind of a, a later later age or really mature or developed but, developed, but in general, the threes have as much of a heart as any other type. And they're really good people. They're not pictured like that. And it's unfair. And, and in that comment... There's a part of it, like what he says at the end is, I know what you really want is attention. So let me be clear, if you choose to keep going this way, no one will ever remember you. I can also see him saying that to the three in himself, to the previous part of himself that wanted nothing more than attention and thought that that's all there is. And him saying there's something much more value, valuable than that. Because certainly if you go back and watch um, Pumping Iron, for example, uh, is it pumping iron? Was the documentary about, yeah. um, uh, yeah. And the, the way he treated Lou Ferrigno in that, I mean, there was not a whole lot of heart there. Right. Uh, so it, it really is a remarkable, uh, transition or transformation. Yeah. I mean, I, I see the transformation here coming from the core quality of the intrinsic value, which is, I mean, now I don't need to chase success and achievement after the others. I mean, I just can commit to a purpose in life. I mean, what you're talking about, uh, the clean energy and, and really supporting Special Olympics is, is, is really committing to a kind of a purpose and, and be there, stay there, and not, not running around uh, uh, chasing uh, achievements. And generativity this development of, of mm -hmm. others. And again, this whole, again, the, the clean energy thing is coming from a guy who was the biggest proponent of Hummers uh, back in the nineties, right? The, uh, the, the, the giant cars, right? So great. So a couple more points before we wrap up here. Okay. So, um, and we're going to end this on a four note in honor of our guest, uh, TJ here. So two things come to mind, TJ, I want you to tell us about the underlying four ish theme in the X-Men. Okay, and then I'll, I'll share another one. Go ahead, tell us about the X-Men. Okay, so growing up, I loved Marvel Comics, and my one mother was very distressed at the fact that I liked comics that included violence, so I was restricted on how many issues I could buy. So I put all my chips on the Uncanny X-Men. That was the story I wanted to read, and it was only as an adult when learning about the Enneagram that I could see 
a big part of why that appealed to the little four that I was. So the premise of the X-Men is that they're a superhero team, and each of them is born a mutant. They're not superheroes because they're aliens. They weren't bit by radioactive spiders. They were born differently, and you could think of them as born wrong. And they are brought to this school by a benevolent one, headmaster, Professor X, Charles Xavier, who says to them, you are wanted here. And the thing that makes you strange and different is good. And there's a home for you here, and you can be the thing that you are, and you can learn to work together, and you can learn to do so for the benefit of the world which hates you. The X-Men was conceived as a very direct analogy for racism. Professor X was based on Martin Luther King, and his rival Magneto hmm. was based on Malcolm X. Oh, interesting. So what, Ma what Malcolm X advocated for was separation. Hmm. And Magneto in the X-Men comics wants mutants to have their own country where they can live separate from human beings. You don't want us, we don't want you. Whereas Professor X comes from a very different direction and says integration is good and we should live together. We should coexist. And even if they hate us, we won't dignify their hatred by hating them back. We will defend them from supervillains and from aliens. We will do what we can to make the world better using what makes us different, not tamping it down, embracing it. And I don't know that any one of the specific X-Men is a four, which is the strange inconsistency with this, but most of them have something that makes them fundamentally different or various analogies for fourness. So Cyclops uh, shoots beams of energy out of his eyes, whether he wants to or not. So he always has to wear a visor. You can never look him in the eyes. Or Rogue's power is if she touches somebody's skin, she will absorb their consciousness. And if they're a superhero, she'll absorb their powers. So she can never get close to anyone. She can never have physical intimacy with anyone without killing them. And Nightcrawler has blue skin and a forked tail and fangs and two fingers and two toes. So he looks monstrous, even though he's probably a seven. He has a lot of joy and energy. And Beast has blue fur all over his entire body. So each of them has, to one degree or another, some essential difference with the rest of the world. And yet, in their world, they accept each other. They honor each other's differences, and they work together. Which, as a young four reading that, that was my dream. That not only are you different, but that difference is good. And there's a place for you. There's a place for you with the other different people. And you can be together. You can have a home. And the way you, you describe it, uh, I can sense that different in a painful way for each one of them. Yes, I mean, this can bring something to the world, but through suffering or through pain, which is, again, a story of a four, you know? Yeah, there's that essential difference that's part of who you are. And it can be very painful. It can separate you from the world. It can take you out of the realm of regular relationships or a regular life which a lot of fours would reject that. I don't want to have a regular life. I don't want to have regular relationships. But beneath that, there's also a deep desire to belong. And on that note, the final movie I wanted to touch on today was one that you, I think you recommended to me, which I would have never thought to watch otherwise, but Pitch Perfect. So uh, Pitch Perfect is about a college a cappella singing contest it's a comedy uh anna kendrick yes. and i think they made like four of those movies or something or they, they made a number of them and for me what i liked about that movie is that yes the main characters are four i mean i think that's pretty clear but there's not this huge drama 
right? I mean, it's not, you know, I have two toes and blue fur, you know, kind of, you know, fourness, right? I mean, it's just like a regular person who you can tell is kind of a four. And I think that's one of the important things that I want to establish about fours before we go is that, you know, they're not all, you know, beret wearing, clove cigarette smoking, you know, weirdos. They blend in with regular society just fine, right? They're, they're good, normal people, but they do have this. So uh, talk to me a little bit about that, TJ, about this, you know, yes, I'm different, but maybe not as different as some people might think. So how that reflected in that movie. That movie's a beautiful journey of a four. And similarly, I went to it with a friend. It was not my idea to see it. I wasn't interested in a movie about acapella singing. Ah, no thanks. Yeah. Didn't scream four all over it. Yeah. It, it screamed chick flick, right? I mean, it, right. it really did. So, uh, yeah. And it also screamed to me silly comedy. Yes. Which the unintegrated four in me just rejects outright for being that. Right. So it was a delight to watch it and realize, I'm watching the story of a four. Whoa, let's see where this goes. So... Acapella singing, especially on college campuses, is not, as I've just been saying, the natural musical genre of fours. You're not going to find many fours in it. You're not going to find many fours who say, I love boy bands. And that's where the main character comes from. She's a college freshman. She is, it's activities day, so all the different clubs have their booth in the college quadrangle, and everybody's saying, come and join the chess club, come and join the Model UN, come and join this, that, and the other thing. And then the acapella group says, why don't you join with us? And there's something in her that actually considers giving it a chance, even though her forced aversion to like, we're going to sing pop songs, we're going to do medleys of all these songs. I'm not into those things. I'm into the thing that's my own. So in the audition scene, she doesn't sing a known pop song. She brings a cup and she does this routine and she sings a song nobody else knows. So she immediately establishes that she's different and she makes the cut. And of course, in any movie like this, we're not following the popular group. We're following the group of underdogs. So there's a fourish element to it there. And of course, there's a rival acapella group on campus. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. We're the outsiders. And that her journey over the course of that movie is coming to see that I'm a part of things and I can be a part of things. I can be accepted by the rest of this group and they can see me and I can learn these pop songs without surrendering my individuality and they can learn some of the songs I know so that in the big climax of the first movie, the big performance that they do incorporates the music that they already did and all these different songs that she brought to them. So it's this great marriage of your individuality can thrive in this situation with a group that sees you and understands you, which again is what every four is craving. Great. All right. Well, TJ, thank you uh, for joining us today and for uh, sharing your insights. And, you know, I think one of the things I am taking away from this conversation is a, um, a renewed appreciation for how the arts are a reflection of human nature, right? And the things that we create, if they are good, will reflect things that are real, such as the Enneagram types, right? So we'll see these dynamics. And I think in the good movies done by good actors, you know, directed by good directors, you see these themes over and over again. So it's a really, really great way to learn about the Enneagram and really appreciate you being here to share your 
uh, knowledge and expertise with us. Tamara, Maria, Jose, any closing comments you want to make before we wrap up? No, I just want to say um, thank you, TJ. I really enjoyed this episode so much. I mean, your perspective is is really fresh to me and, and enjoyable. You know, thank you so much. It was fascinating to see how passionate you are about all this and how many insights you have. So... Thank you, and I'm sure that people will enjoy listening to it. Uh, TJ, I, I uh, forgot to ask you, where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, I'm easy to find on YouTube and on social media. You can find one of my full monologues. It's called Medicine on YouTube. And there's another one on Vimeo called Operatic Panic Attack. And I'm in the process of revamping my website, tjdaw.ca. And I'm easy to find on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I'm out there. There's not. It's one of the benefits of having an unusual name. Not too many yes. other people have it. Yes, uh, Dahl is D A W E. In case anybody was wondering, with um, no S at the end. People often put an S at the end. Oh, I've never understood why. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute blast, and I love talking about the Enneagram, and I love talking about the arts. So if any of you had had the tolerance for it, I easily could have gone on for another 12 hours. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we're going to have that opportunity. Again, I'm looking forward, TJ. You know, we will uh, do our, um, our Enneagram and a director series. Uh, we're going to have to convince Maria Jose and Tamara to join us on that. Uh, they're, they're balking at the idea of watching 50 movies, uh, but, uh, you know, maybe we'll be able to convince them. So, uh, all right, guys, uh, everybody, thank you again. Uh, this has been the Enneagram in a movie. We're going to take a little break, uh, from producing these, but, uh, we'll be back in a couple of months. So long, everybody. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Find out more about the Enneagram and our offerings at awarenesstoaction.com. And if you enjoyed the episode, please go online and give us a review. We'll see you next time.